The scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were all in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite persons to listen to or to read his works is a Christian comedian by the name of Ken Davis. He tells a story about a speech class he had in college, and he was obligated for that speech class to teach a lesson, to prepare a lesson to teach in the speech class. And they were the, the class was going to be graded on creativity and the ability to drive home the point in a memorable way. The title of his talk was The Law of the Pendulum. So he spent a number of minutes very carefully explaining the law of the pendulum. The law of the pendulum, pendulum is simply that a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum swings, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it finally comes to rest. This point of rest is called the state of equilibrium. He demonstrated the, the law of the pendulum by taking a three-foot string and attaching it to the board with a child's toy, a little top on the end, and he held it up and he marked where he was holding it and let it go, and it swung and it came back, but not quite as high, and he marked it again, and it swung and it came back, and he marked it again. And so he marked every time it returned to the side from which he had re originally released it. And when it finally reached the center, reached equilibrium, he showed on the board where the marks were. And that demonstrated that what he was teaching was true. He asked 
how many people in the room believed, and every student in the room raised their hand, as did the professor. And so then he took the teacher, and he had the teacher sit on a table in a chair with his head against a concrete block wall. And that's when the teacher realized that hanging from the center of the room, suspended from a steel beam, was 250 pounds of metal weights on several strands of parachute cord. So he took this 250-pound pendulum to the far side of the room, opposite where the professor was sitting on the chair on the table, and let go. He had started with the pendulum at the professor's nose before he took it to the far side of the room, and he said to the professor, your nose is safe, because remember, it will never return to this point. Before it could swing back, the professor moved out of the way. He wasn't going to let that pendulum hit him. And at the end of this demonstration, Ken Davis asked, did the professor truly believe? And the answer was no. The professor was willing to believe when it was a few marks on a chalkboard, but when it was actually his nose in question, nah, he had his doubts. We call the disciple that is featured in this story we've read today, Doubting Thomas. And this story in Scripture is the reason we call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas didn't believe the disciples when they told him that they had seen Jesus. He said he wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus himself and he could put his fingers in the marks on his hand and he could put his hand in the gash on his side. He had to see Jesus. He had to touch Jesus before he would believe. But before we give Thomas two bad a rap, and before we perpetuate the idea that Thomas was somehow less than the other disciples because he admitted his doubts, let's consider the whole situation. Here are some things to think about. First, Thomas wasn't just a man willing to express his doubts. He was also a man of resolve. Because you see, in an earlier story, when Jesus received the news of Lazarus' death, he waited for a time, and then he let the disciples know he was going to Bethany. The disciples reminded Jesus that they had been there before, and the Jews threatened to stone him. They were saying basically that none of them wanted to go to Bethany because it was dangerous. But Jesus was going. So one of the disciples said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. That disciple was Thomas, the man who doubted the resurrection of Jesus, who was willing to admit that he doubted what the other disciples were telling him, who might have had doubts about something that was completely unusual happening. This is the man who had no doubts about going with Jesus even if it meant going toward death. So what can we learn from this? We can learn that doubts did not define Thomas. Thomas was not defined by his doubts. He was instead defined by his willingness to follow Christ. We can also learn that doubts don't define us. Even the most faithful follower of Christ 
will have times of doubt. He or she will doubt their ability to complete a task that Christ has called them to do. You've doubted. I know you have. I've doubted. I have had times when it felt like my prayers were rising up to the ceiling and then bouncing there, like a a helium-filled balloon that had been let go. I have asked, Lord, why don't you answer me? Where are you? I just don't feel like you're listening. Those are doubts being expressed. Doubts are not the issue. Letting our doubts define us is the issue. Letting our doubts define us means that we are allowing our doubts to be stronger than God's presence in our lives. That harms our faith journey, and it keeps us from doing the work of building the kingdom. Another thing to notice about this story is that Thomas wasn't the only doubter in the story. He was just the only one who's recorded as admitting his doubts. If you notice in the beginning... Jesus appeared in a locked room, and he said to the disciples, Peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. Only after seeing his wounds were the disciples filled with joy. They had no joy until they saw exactly what Thomas was saying he needed to see. Jesus had to repeat his greeting of peace be with you because they didn't know what to make of his appearance or whether he was real until they saw his wounds. Do you think you're the only person who has doubts? No, you're not. We all have doubts, even those we believe to be the most faithful. Consider Mother Teresa, a nun who dedicated her life to serving the most destitute, the sickest, the poorest. She went years. She went 50 years of her life, doubting. She couldn't feel the presence of God. She couldn't hear his voice. She was afraid that he had deserted her or was hiding from her. Hear her describe her doubt in her own words. In the darkness, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me now, the child of your love, and now become as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted, Unloved, I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. Where I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I am told that God lives in me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Ladies and gentlemen, if Mother Teresa could live in such doubt for 50 years and still serve Christ by serving the least and the lost, why are you so afraid of a time of doubt? And what about Jesus? What did Jesus do with a room full of disciples who weren't sure he was who he said he was, who weren't sure whether or not he was real. What did Jesus do with a disciple who insisted on proof? Jesus didn't punish the doubters. Instead, he met them where they were, and he invited them to join him on a journey deeper into faith. 
That's exactly what he will do for us today. He will meet us where we are and encourage us to have the courage to follow him until our doubts have ended and our faith is stronger. C.S. Lewis, a marvelous Christian author, wrote these words, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as you do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. I think we can use the, the thought behind that quote to express what we should do when we have doubts. Don't waste time bothering whether your doubts are true or not. Act as if you have faith. And when you do that, when you behave as if you have faith, you will reach the point in time where you know you have faith. That is faith in action, overcoming our doubts through action, just as Mother Teresa lived with her doubts and never stopped working for God. There's one more thing about this story that I think we should consider. If we focus on doubting Thomas, we miss the point of the story. Because the faith of the disciples and where and how and when they believed that Jesus was actually resurrected is not the point of the story. It's not the reason the story was recorded by John. We are told in verse 31 that the point of telling the story is to bring about belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, and through belief in him to have life in his name. The entire point of the whole Gospel of John is to bring us to the point that we use the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God, as an, exclam as an exclamation of the foundation of our faith. This exclamation by Thomas, my Lord and my God, this is the first time in these words that Jesus was equated with God. Until this point, Christ was viewed as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, but not a part of the fullness of God, not as a part of the Godhead. As the Son of God, Jesus was considered separate from God. And in Thomas, we find the first proclamation from a follower that Jesus was God. John based his entire gospel on that proclamation. His gospel, written long after the time when Thomas first encountered the risen Lord, begins with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John spends in his entire gospel teaching people that Christ was God. Ladies and gentlemen, until you begin to understand, until you begin to catch a glimpse of the fact that it was God himself who gave up heaven to come to earth to save you, you don't fully understand what it means to call Jesus Lord and God and Savior. Jesus tried to tell us that. He said that to know him was to know the Father. In the story we've heard in Scripture today, we find that Thomas finally sees, Thomas finally sees God fully revealed in Jesus, the invisible God made visible. We are called to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but not just that Christ rose from the dead. 
We are called to believe in Jesus' identity as God, as a part of the Godhead, with the resurrection as a sign and a symbol of that identity and that relationship. The center of the story told throughout the Gospel of John is the story of Jesus, the story of the Word becoming flesh to meet humanity right where we are so that we can come to know God and then become what God wants us to be. The resurrection story is the pledge and the promise that all generations, those who were able to see the resurrected Jesus and those who hear the stories from the faithful, all generations can find the presence of God in the stories of the resurrection and be drawn to faith. Don't let your doubts define you. Understand that God himself gave himself up for you and be filled with gratitude and courage so that you become one of the faithful followers who shares the stories of Christ and helps unbelievers come to faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.